Welcome to this edition of the Journal of Neuroophthalmology podcast. This is Dr. Prem Subramanian, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and I'm joined today by Dr. Valerie Pervin, who is Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Indiana School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Perman, thank you for joining us today. I'd like to begin by asking you uh, about one issue in your article that you raised in terms of idiopathic neuroretinitis and comparing it to cat scratch-related neuroretinitis in patients who have a monophasic sort of illness. And in describing these two categories, what clinical differences did you find between the groups? Were there signs or symptoms that might point you in the direction towards cat scratch as opposed to the more idiopathic type of neuroretinitis in these patients? Well, it's interesting. It turns out that it doesn't work that well to just divide them in two. I mean, we, we thought it might, just cat scratch versus idiopathic. But the idiopathic patients either have single-episode idiopathic or they have this recurrent form that I actually happen to see a lot of. And the um, clinical features of each of these three groups are different. And so we, we were interested in several different aspects of clinical differences among these groups. One pervasive question for me is what do these recurrent patients have? Because these are difficult patients. It's, they su- sustain severe loss with recurrent attacks. It's a very, very difficult disease. And one of my questions has always been, what what is this really? I've been assuming it's an autoimmune disease, but but we don't have proof of that. And I always worry that maybe it's an infection that keeps flaring up again. Maybe we're missing an infectious disease. So I've been particularly interested in that recurrent group. What is that and how how could we tell? How does it look different from ones that we know are infectious, the cat scratch group? And does it look different from the single episode idiopathic group? And so we looked at these three groups and compared the three. And what we found was that there is clearly a big difference between the cat scratch group at one end of the spectrum and the recurrent idiopathic at the other, and in in various ways, and and I'll go into some of those in a moment. But the single episode idiopathic seemed to fall somewhere in between. And in most respects, they're actually more like cat scratch, but not all. There's a couple of differences, a couple of ways in which they they are more like the recurrent. One of the things we found as a difference was systemic symptoms, which are very common in cat scratch patients. About three-quarters of patients with cat scratch neuroretinitis have some sort of preceding systemic prodrome, whereas in the idiopathic single episode, only a quarter of patients had systemic symptoms, and in the recurrent episodes, it was only about 13%. So in that way, cat scratch really looks different from idiopathic. We found that visual acuity measurements really didn't help. They were very similar in all three groups, but visual fields were different. And um, the main thing we found was that in cat scratch neuroretinitis patients, a very common pattern is a large central scotoma or large central scotoma, but with a small or no relative afferent pupillary defect. And so we think that this represents actually the serous detachment at the macula. So this is really a retinopathy in terms of the visual loss rather than optic neuropathy. And whereas the patients with the recurrent episodes 
often they often have central loss, but in addition, they have neurofiber bundle defects. So they'll have a large arcuate defect, sometimes altitudinal, sometimes radial defects, and sometimes these coalesce with the central defect, and over time with repeated episodes, they coalesce with each other. So, so the visual field pattern is really different, in, in, at, again, at either end of, of the spectrum, the um, different between cat scratch and the recurrent. The uh, magnitude of visual field loss is also different. We used a system to measure the amount of visual field loss in each of these patients, and we found that the magnitude at onset was much greater in the recurrent group, least in the cat scratch, and in between in the um, idiopathic single episodes. And then finally, the other difference that we found was the, the recovery is different. So cat scratch patients usually do very well in terms of recovery, whereas the recurrent episodes really do very poorly. And again, the idiopathic single episodes are somewhere in between. So the single episodes look a lot like cat scratch in terms of pattern of field loss and extensive recovery, but in terms of systemic symptoms, the idiopathic single episodes look more like recurrent and not like cat scratch. Now, based on these observations that you have made on these patient groups, when a patient with suspected neuroretinitis walks into our offices, do you suggest that we use things like the magnitude of the afferent defect, the severity of their visual field loss to guide our initial workup? Can that direct us a particular way? Or do you feel that all the patients should be evaluated initially in the same manner? No, I think that information is really helpful, but along with other clinical features. So I think that they all need to be taken into consideration. And and I think it's really um, difficult or misleading to talk about what is the correct workup for, for a neuroretinitis patient. I think I would, I would use a number of, of factors to, to help determine that. So for example, a um, very young patient, we, we found that one feature that I didn't mention is the age. The, the average age is not all that different between the three groups, but, but the really young patients, sort of single-digit patients, patients age 7, 8, 9, and young teenagers, um, certain is, is not uncommon in cat scratch and very uncommon in the recurrent idiopathic. So, so for example, sort of poster child for cat scratch would be a young, uh, very young adult or child with a recent systemic symptoms and cat exposure with a central, large central scotoma and small relative afferent pupillary defect. So I mean, that, that to me says that's cat scratch. And so for, for somebody like that, I would get cat scratch titers and probably nothing else. I, I, you, know, you can get whatever tests you want, but I think they're very unlikely to show something else. And that's also a group in whom if the initial serologic testing said, nah, this isn't cat scratch, I would go back and do it again because we now know that some patients are uh, misleadingly negative. The IgG looks negative at first. The IgM may never really show a rise, but if you retest six weeks later, you'll see this rise in post-convalescent titers that will clinch the diagnosis. It's also a group that patients who look very much like they have cat scratch in all these ways uh, where you would certainly uh, want to start antibiotics just on suspicion and because it always takes a little time to get back the serologic test. So I would feel very comfortable about treating a patient like that who looks like they have cat scratch in each of these ways to treat them with antibiotics and do very little workup and wait for the results to come back. Somebody at the other end of the extreme with, without a cat exposure, no systemic symptoms, severe visual loss that doesn't have a, just a purely central pattern, so extensive loss or, or, or more specifically visual field loss with a field neurofiber pattern defect, 
and a large RE, a relative atrium pupillary defect, those patients, it's you know certainly appropriate to check cat scratch titers, but I would make sure to check other things as well. I would be more aggressive uh, for somebody, somebody like that. I would be more inclined to use steroids um, so that we don't feel bad afterwards if that attack doesn't do well, that we don't feel like, oh, we could maybe we should have tried harder, maybe something else should have been done. It would also play into prognosis, what you tell patients as far as their um, anticipated recovery, how much better do you think this is going to get, and what will happen to them in the future. Thank you. That's very helpful. Now, you raised the issue of the use of steroids, and if I'm reading your article correctly, the outcome for patients with recurrent neuroretinitis was improved by the use of immunosuppression, but not by corticosteroids alone. Based on that, when a patient presents to your office with a new episode of neuroretinitis that has characteristics of the recurrent type of disease, do you feel that you can start these patients immediately on long-term immunosuppression, or are you compelled to wait until that second episode occurs so that you can confirm that this is the correct diagnosis? Yeah, that's a really hard question. I, I, I'm still reluctant to prescribe long-term chronic immunosuppression for somebody with one episode. I think that's very, it's really putting yourself out there uh, as, as far as um, uh, not really having a good handle in the future. So, so for example, you put somebody on immunosuppression and then they, they go five years and they don't have a, an attack. So is that because that medicine is working really well or because they weren't going to have another attack anyway? So I, I, I do feel more strongly that I can predict. I have a, I've had a pretty good sense for a while now, even before we really looked at all our data, I felt like I had a strong sense of who was going to have another attack. And so I would warn them. I would, uh, instead of giving them this really nice kind of rosy picture of how, oh, this is probably one time only, you'll get better, not, it's not part of MS, you'll, you'll do very well in, in, in all these ways, I'm much more um, conservative, much more... Um, circumscript about what I will tell them, and I warn them that they may have another episode. I, I, at this point, I guess with the extra data, I would give them a choice. I would tell them we could, you know, put that out there. We could treat you with long-term immunosuppression, and the least aggressive, most conservative form would be just alternate day prednisone, 10 milligrams every other day. And and you could say, well, I'm, I'm not going to hurt them with that. And I think that's true. It's not expensive. It doesn't have a lot of long-term side effects, but it does put you in the situation of not knowing then what, if they do well, you won't know if, if that's your, um, your treatment or that's their natural history. So I, I, it's more comfortable to wait for a second episode. I think the other thing that would weigh into that decision is how severe the first episode is. So the, the decision whether to treat somebody uh, with long-term immunosuppression who's had just one episode is also based in part on how severe that first episode is. So for a patient that comes in with a relative afferent pupillary defect and some disc-related field loss, but significant retained useful vision still in that eye, uh, I would be much more inclined to give them a chance to have a second episode. If somebody has actually lost all vision, we've had an occasional patient that just wiped out, like no light perception or a little island of vision somewhere in the periphery, that's what their first episode did. How much chance do you want to give them to have a second episode if they really seem to fall in that group? Again, no systemic symptoms, no cat exposure, um, and, and the visual exam features of recurrent attacks, do we really want to give them a chance to have that second episode that may lose the other eye? So I think I would factor that in as well. It's not, it's not quite as simple as do you treat a first episode or not. And, and back to the, the question of, of steroids, we make the distinction between steroids improving the visual outcome in any individual attack 
versus steroids improving the long-term outcome. But being careful that what we mean by outcome, at least what we have looked at in our study, was number of recurrent attacks. So we really didn't look at visual outcome in treated patients versus visual outcome in untreated patients. We, we, we tr have treated almost all of our acute episodes with steroids, um, but admit that we don't see a lot of improvement, that the disc edema goes away whether you treat or not, and the vision may improve, the visual acuity and, and field may improve modestly, but this big chunk that got knocked out, it's, it's a lot like ischemic optic neuropathy. A, a piece gets knocked out, and that piece pretty much stays gone. And that doesn't seem to be affected by steroids. We treat them, and that piece is still gone. But if we put people on long-term immunosuppression, what we found is that we can decrease the number of attacks that they subsequently have. And the way we looked at that was kind of aggregate of looking, taking a group of patients with recurrent idiopathic neuroretinitis and looking at the number of episodes they had up until the time they started long-term immunosuppression, versus the number of episodes they had after they were on immunosuppression. And when we put them together in a group, we found that there was a significant decrease in the average number of attacks after starting treatment compared to before. But unfortunately, it's not 100%. I had the, um, the hope and, and maybe vague uh, belief before we really looked at all our numbers that we were really stopping the, the episodes, that once we start people on immunosuppression, they don't have any more attacks. But unfortunately, it's, it's not true. It's not 100% effective, but it does decrease the, um, the rate of, of attacks, and that has held up with larger numbers of patients as well. Thank you so much for discussing this very perplexing still and challenging disease that all of us face, and I think the observations that you've made will help us as we manage our patients in the future. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast represents the copyrighted content of the North American Neuroophthalmology Society. All views expressed in this podcast represent the opinions of the participants. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the society or the publisher or the journal, the Journal of Neuroophthalmology.